0: Chapter One, Part Two of Supplements to the First Book, First Half: The Doctrine of the Idea of Perception, from the World as Will and Idea, Volume Two by Arthur Schopenhauer, translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. The Doctrine of the Idea of Perception, Chapter One: The Standpoint of Idealism. Part two. the true idealism on the contrary is not the empirical but the transcendental this leaves the empirical reality of the world untouched but holds fast to the fact that every object thus the empirically real in general is conditioned in a twofold manner by the subject in the first place materially or as object generally because an objective existence is only conceivable as opposed to a subject and as its idea in the second place formally because the mode of existence of an object i e its being perceived space time causality proceeds from the subject is prearranged in the subject therefore with the simple or Berkeleyan idealism which concerns the object in general there stands in immediate connection the kantian idealism which concerns the specially given mode or manner of objective existence this proves that the whole material world with its bodies which are extended in space and by means of time have causal relations to each other and everything that depends upon this that all this is not something which is there independently of our head but essentially presupposes the functions of our brain by means of which and in which alone such an objective arrangement of things is possible for time space and causality upon which all those real and objective events rest are themselves nothing more than functions of the brain so that thus the unchangeable order of things which affords the criterion and clue to their empirical reality itself proceeds only from the brain and has its credentials from this alone all this kant has expounded fully and thoroughly only he does not speak of the brain but calls it the faculty of knowledge indeed he has attempted to prove that when that objective order in time space causality matter etc upon which all the events of the real world ultimately rest is properly considered it cannot even be conceived as a self-existing order that is an order of the thing in itself or as something absolutely objective and unconditionally given for if one tries to think this out it leads to contradictions to accomplish this was the object of the antinomies but in the appendix to my work i have proved the failure of the attempt on the other hand the kantian doctrine even without the antinomies leads to the insight that things and the whole mode of their existence are inseparably bound up with our consciousness of them therefore whoever has distinctly grasped this soon attains to the conviction that the assumption that things also exist as such apart from and independently of our consciousness is really absurd that we are so deeply involved in time space causality and the whole regular process of experience which rests upon them that we and indeed the brutes are so perfectly at home and know how to find our way from the first this would not be possible if our intellect were one thing and things another but can only be explained from the fact that both constitute one whole the intellect itself creates that order and exists only for things while they on the other hand exist only for it but even apart from the deep insight which only the kantian philosophy gives the inadmissibility of the assumption of absolute realism which is so obstinately clung to may be directly shown or at least made capable of being felt by the simple exhibition of its meaning in the light of such considerations as the following according to realism the world is supposed to exist as we know it independently of this knowledge let us once then remove all percipient beings from it and leave only unorganised and vegetable nature rock tree and brook are there and the blue heaven sun moon and stars light this world as before yet certainly in vain for there is no eye to see it let us now in addition place in it a percipient being now that world presents itself again in his brain and repeats itself within it precisely as it was formerly without it thus to the first world a second has been added which although completely separated from it resembles it to a nicety and now the subjective world of this perception is precisely so constituted in subjective known space as the objective world in objective infinite space but the subjective world has this advantage over the objective the knowledge that that space outside there is infinite indeed it can also give beforehand most minutely and accurately the whole constitution or necessary properties of all relations which are possible though not yet actual in that space and does not require to examine them it can tell just as much with regard to the course of time and also with regard to the relation of cause and effect which governs the changes in that external world i think all this when closely considered turns out absurd enough and hence leads to the conviction that that absolute objective world outside the head independent of it and prior to all knowledge which at first we imagined ourselves to conceive is really no other than the second the world which is known subjectively the world of idea as which alone we are actually able to conceive it thus of its own accord the assumption forces itself upon us that the world as we know it exists also only for our knowledge therefore in the idea alone and not a second time outside of it in accordance then with this assumption the thing in itself that is that which exists independently of our knowledge and of every knowledge is to be regarded as something completely different from the idea and all its attributes thus from objectivity in general what this is will be the subject of our second book on the other hand the controversy concerning the reality of the external world considered in section five of the first volume rests upon the assumption which has just been criticised of an objective and a subjective world both in space and upon the impossibility which arises in connection with this presupposition of a transition from one to the other a bridge between the two upon this controversy i have still to add the following remarks the subjective and the objective do not constitute a continuous whole that of which we are immediately conscious is bounded by the skin or rather by the extreme ends of the nerves which proceed from the cerebral system beyond this lies a world of which we have no knowledge except through pictures in our head now the question is whether and how far there is a world independent of us which corresponds to these pictures the relation between the two could only be brought about by means of the law of causality for this law alone leads from what is given to something quite different from it but this law itself has first of all to prove its validity now it must either be of objective or of subjective origin but in either case it lies upon one or the other side and therefore cannot supply the bridge between them if as locke and hume assume it is a posteriori thus drawn from experience it is of objective origin and belongs then itself to the external world which is in question therefore it cannot attest the reality of this world for then according to locke's method causality would be proved from experience and the reality of experience from causality if on the contrary it is given a priori as kant has more correctly taught us then it is of subjective origin and in that case it is clear that with it we remain always in the subjective sphere for all that is actually given empirically in perception is the occurrence of a sensation in the organ of sense and the assumption that this even in general must have a cause rests upon a law which is rooted in the form of our knowledge that is in the functions of our brain the origin of this law is therefore just as subjective as that of the sensation itself the cause of the given sensation which is assumed in consequence of this law presents itself at once in perception as an object which has space and time for the form of its manifestation but these forms themselves again are entirely of subjective origin for they are the mode or method of our faculty of perception that transition from the sensation to its cause which as i have repeatedly pointed out lies at the foundation of all sense perception is certainly sufficient to give us the empirical presence in space and time of an empirical object and is therefore quite enough for the practical purposes of life but it is by no means sufficient to afford us any conclusion as to the existence in real nature or rather as to the intelligible substratum of the phenomena which in this way arise for us thus that on the occasion of certain sensations occurring in my organs of sense there arises in my head a perception of things which are extended in space permanent in time and causally efficient by no means justifies the assumption that they also exist in themselves that is that such things with these properties belonging absolutely to themselves exist independently and outside of my head this is the true outcome of the kantian philosophy it coincides with an earlier result of locke's which is just as true, but far more easily understood. For although, as Locke's doctrine permits, external things are absolutely assumed as the causes of sensations, yet there can be no resemblance between the sensation in which the effect consists and the objective nature of the cause which occasions it. For the sensation as organic function is primarily determined by the highly artificial and complicated nature of our organs of sense. It is therefore merely excited by the external cause, but is then perfected entirely in accordance with its own laws, and thus is completely subjective. Locke's philosophy was the criticism of the functions of sense; Kant has given us the criticism of the functions of the brain, but to all this we have yet to add the Berkeleyan result, which has been revised by me, that every object, whatever its origin may be, is as object already conditioned by the subject is in fact merely its idea the aim of realism is indeed the object without subject but it is impossible even to conceive such an object distinctly from this whole inquiry it follows with certainty and distinctness that it is absolutely impossible to attain to the comprehension of the inner nature of things upon the path of mere knowledge and perception for knowledge always comes to things from without and therefore must forever remain outside them this end would only be reached if we could find ourselves in the inside of things so that their inner nature would be known to us directly now how far this is actually the case is considered in my second book but so long as we are concerned as in this first book with objective comprehension that is, with knowledge the world is and remains for us a mere idea for here there is no possible path by which we can cross over to it but besides this a firm grasp of the point of view of idealism is a necessary counterpoise to that of materialism the controversy concerning the real and the ideal may also be regarded as a controversy concerning the existence of matter for it is the reality or ideality of this that is ultimately in question does matter as such exist only in our idea or does it also exist independently of it in the latter case it would be the thing in itself and whoever assumes a self-existent matter must also consistently be a materialist That is, he must make matter the principle of explanation of all things whoever on the contrary denies its existence as a thing in itself is eo ipso an idealist among the moderns only locke has definitely and without ambiguity asserted the reality of matter and therefore his teaching led in the hands of Condillac, to the sensualism and materialism of the french only berkeley directly and without modification denies matter the complete antithesis is thus that of idealism and materialism represented in its extremes by berkeley and the french materialists holbach fichte is not to be mentioned here he deserves no place among true philosophers among those elect of mankind who with deep earnestness seek not their own things but the truth and therefore must be not confused with those who under this pretence have only their personal advancement in view fichte is the father of the sham philosophy of the disingenuous method which through ambiguity in the use of words incomprehensible language and sophistry seeks to deceive and tries moreover to make a deep impression by assuming an air of importance in a word the philosophy which seeks to bamboozle and humbug those who desire to learn after this method had been applied by schelling it reached its height as everyone knows in hegel in whose hands it developed into pure charlatanism but whoever even names this fichte seriously along with kant shows that he has not even a dim notion of what kant is on the other hand materialism also has its warrant it is just as true that the knower is a product of matter as that matter is merely the idea of the knower but it is also just as one-sided for materialism is the philosophy of the subject that forgets to take account of itself and accordingly as against the assertion that i am a mere modification of matter this must be insisted upon that all matter exists merely in my idea and it is no less right. A knowledge, as yet obscure, of these relations seems to have been the origin of the saying of Plato, "Uli alithinan sudas, materia mendacium verax." End of Chapter One, Part Two. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.